as Ryan and I were thinking through this, this service, um, one of the things we talked about was freedom in Christ and what that looks like. Um, I know it's true for me, and I would, I'd be willing to bet I'm not alone. Um, there are times, there are moments where I just feel stuck in sin habits, um, and it feels like I'm just like a dead man walking. Um, and in those moments, I have to remind myself, um, there's a passage in Ephesians 2 uh, that helps me remind myself of freedom and what life in Christ is. Um, it starts like this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were dead when we had to get drunk to have fun or look at porn to, to feel better about ourselves or do everything in our power um, to maintain an image that isn't us. Um, but God saw us in that sin and he didn't leave us there. He brought us out of it and into life with Christ. Um, and in this life, we are his worksmanship, we are his art and we are free. Um, by his grace and by his power, we can look at that sin that has held us captive for so long and we can say no and we can walk away from it. Um, and, and that's what freedom is. And if you're, if you're here tonight and you want that freedom, if you haven't experienced it before, man, we want that for you too. And we're gonna have some people up here at the end of service um, that you can talk to and, and pray with. Um, but for now, we're gonna stand again and we're gonna sing about that freedom in Christ and the change that he brings in life. Um, so if y'all wanna stand with us and worship.
Father, you've made a way for us through your son, through your son, Jesus, and, and the, the 
life and death, the resurrection on, from the cross, God, from the grave. That, that is what we have hope in, and that is what we can rest in, knowing that it is finished, um, God, that Jesus made a way. And so, God, it's my prayer that as, as we um, roll into this next series, God, you would teach us what it is you have for us. Speak to our hearts. Use Garland to articulate what it is that you want us to hear, God, as we able to just learn more and grow more in your goodness. It's in your son's precious name. Amen. Before you sit down, if you wouldn't mind, uh, if, it's such a nice day. It's a beautiful day. Turn and greet the people around you. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. Say what's up. Welcome to Fellowship Sunday night, everybody. Grab a seat, grab a seat. If you're a college student at the U of A, uh, which I assume a lot of you are, then uh, you only got four more weeks until dead day. And then it's finals, and then it's summer. So, okay. Very excited about school, I see. How are we? Decent enough. I love, like, when it goes below about 64 degrees, I think it's freezing, and so today was awesome. Like, I'm in a great mood. Uh, today, today was just a beautiful day. Uh, it's my, my middle daughter's birthday today, and so we just had a good day, and we had cupcakes, and I love, I had multiple cupcakes, I had two burgers and a hot dog and multiple cupcakes, so I'm just running on sugar a little bit, so it should be a fun night. Um, we're going we're gonna to transition, though, and, and I'm going to put a question up that my bet is... Almost everybody in this room has thought or wondered, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, my bet is a lot of you have thought this. And maybe some of you came in here tonight and you're thinking this right now. And, I, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I, on Thursday afternoon, this, the, the talk that we're about to kind of walk through together, uh, I was like, I don't want to give this. I don't, I don't want to do this. Uh, it's just too heavy where we're going to go tonight. And uh, Tad Moore, who's one of our student ministry staff here, was like, dude, like, you just... Just stick with it, like just go. Uh, I know it's gonna be heavy, but just, just go ahead. And uh, uh, so here, here we are, here's the question. And by virtue of the question, I think you'll see kind of the heaviness that we're gonna walk into uh, here as we move forward. Here's the question. What do I do when the circumstances of life, or maybe even my whole story, it seems like, suggest to me that God might as well be a million miles away? And if he's not a million miles away, if he's close, it sure seems like he doesn't care. Like, what do I do? What do you do when you have these questions or these feelings or the circumstances around your life and in your story, they just seem to go haywire and things happen and they make you wonder, is God really there? I'm Garland, by the way, if you're new with us. This is, not, we, this is gonna be a little heavier than normal. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're here. It might be that you're here for a very specific reason you need to process this. Uh, this is uh, Collins. She's my youngest daughter. And uh, this was about two years ago. 
Uh, she had a, a seizure about 11 o'clock at night. If you've been around a college ministry, you remember this happening a few years ago. And uh, so about 11 o'clock at night, we, we heard this noise coming from her room, and we went in there, and she was in the middle of seizing. Uh, and my wife and I immediately ran to the, we rushed to the car, went to the hospital, and she continued to seize for about 35 minutes. And we didn't know what, we didn't know what was going on. And they had, to, they had to paralyze her to get the seizure to stop. Then they, they said, we're lifelighting her down to Little Rock. That's where the, 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 what do you call it, the NICU is down in Little Rock. And so my wife got on the plane that they flew, their, flew her, Collins down there with. And I had to drive because they could only put one person in the plane. And uh, so I drove down to Little Rock. And we spent the whole weekend there. And it was one of those moments. I, I will never forget sitting in that emergency room with there's a bunch of doctors and nurses in there, and they kind of moved us out, which to me was a bad sign when they said, we need to get the parents out of here. Uh, and I remember sitting there, and the, the tons of feelings, obviously, and thoughts that I was having, but one of them was, God, how could you be in this? Like, this can't be, you can't be in this. And just, just so you know, she's fine, like this is her now. Uh, she's great, like she's, we, she didn't have any brain damage, we thought there would be, and uh, we didn't know she was going to survive. So she's, she's good, you know, uh, she's running around like a Tasmanian devil at our house. Uh, but my question for you is this question, like what do you do when the circumstances seem to say God's not in this? And that might be different for a lot of us in the room. Like I know that some of you right now, your parents are divorcing and it just rips your guts out and you feel betrayed. And maybe some of you, you were five when that happened. For some of you, it's relationships that have just gone toxic or a, a relationship that dissolved on you and you thought, man, this is gonna be something that's stable for me and it went away. And it just, it's left you empty, it's left you wounded, it's left you feeling betrayed. For some of you, maybe it is, it is somebody who's passed away that, man, you were really close to and they're gone now. For some of us in this room, maybe it's something that happened to you, that somebody did to you that was evil and that was wrong, but it feels like it haunts you and you don't feel like God's in it. Or maybe it's a, a doubt that you've got. You just keep running this doubt up to the Lord. Man, I don't know if I can believe in you because of this and because of this. And you feel like what you get on the other end is just silence. Or maybe when you're battling with sin, Jesus followers in the room, you're like, God, I'm trying here and I'm asking for help, but I don't feel like you're in it with me. I don't know your story, and I don't know the circumstances of your life, but we're gonna go here tonight. And I know that's a heavy introduction. Uh, I tried everything I could to do something different with this sermon tonight, but I want to invite you into the story of Esther. If you have your Bibles, open them. Do not be afraid and do not be ashamed of using the table of contents, all right? I recognize many of you, the book of Esther is gonna have nice, crisp pages in your Bible, which means you've never looked at it. Awesome. It's so, I'll, I'll be honest, I have fallen in love with this little book tucked away in your Old Testament. It's incredible what it's gonna be able to teach us. Let me ask you to do this. If you're a Jesus follower in the room, we got four weeks to look at the book of Esther. Bring your friends to look at this narrative. It's really easy to kind of lock into the story and kind of enter into the story. So bring your friends for these next uh, three weeks after tonight to come and just experience this story together. I've fallen in love with this book. It's amazing. And we're gonna dive into the book of Esther over these next, uh, these next four weeks. Uh, so you found it? Everybody found it? You have a, if you have the app on your phone, the Bible app, it's really easy. You just find it. Uh, but if you don't, if you have a paper Bible, use the table of contents, turn there, Esther chapter one. And here's what happens. Here's what we see at the very beginning of this book. It starts this way. 
And I'm going to read it how I think a lot of our brains read the Old Testament. Okay? This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Don't know what that is. At that time, Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for his nobles and officials. And the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles, were all there. Welcome to Esther. Here's the reality. I get when we read the Old Testament so frequently, I have the same experience you have. It's something like this. I don't know what's going on here. Who are these people? And what the heck's happening? And then almost immediately it starts becoming incredibly boring. That's okay. I have the same experience that you have. So have you ever entered into a story or entered into a conversation like you come back to a table with some of your friends and somebody is t- telling a story that everybody's laughing at, but you don't know what the story is. It's awkward, right? And you never exactly know what to do. Do you enter in to the table and begin to laugh? This happened to me like a week and a half ago. I sat back down. Everybody was laughing. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know the story. And I thought it would be rude to just stare at the guy telling it because everybody else was laughing. But then if you fake laugh, that's so inauthentic. What do you think I did? I fake left. Because I didn't know what else to do. I started going. <laughs> you know how you do that socially? We all do it. It's very awkward. That's what it is oftentimes for us with the Old Testament. We've, we're entering into a story that we don't know any of the context and we don't know what's going on. And for us, it's not all that funny. So we just move along and we're like, get me back to Philippians or the Gospel of John or something like that. Because I've read those before and I know what's going on. We don't want to have that experience here. To get the background, to get what's going on, we're going to have to get some context and we're going to have to do some history. History majors? How about a little noise from you? (laughs) That's about the excitement I thought I'd get for the history majors. Uh, We're going to do a little history. And some of you are like, man, I, I hate history. I've always hated history. Bear with me. We gotta get the background of what's going on. So let's do a little bit history, little history lesson here. Big picture of your Old Testament. Here it is. Moses, let my people go, the 10 plagues of Egypt. Some scholars put that in the 1400s BC, others in the 1200s BC. We're talking about 3,500 years ago. Track it with me. King David versus Goliath. That's around the turn of 1000 BC. The nation of Israel is gonna experience two devastating events. The first will be in 722, the the 10 northern tribes of the people group called Israel. Because of their wickedness, rebellion, and sin, they are carried off into Assyrian exile. They're now scattered as refugees. Tens of thousands of them were killed. It's a dark day in Israel's history. The remaining two tribes learn none of the lessons that those tribes, from, from those tribes. Instead of saying, man, they sucked. There's a reason they got carried off in exile. We should turn back to Yahweh. They didn't. They continued to worship idols just like the other tribes. And as a result, in 586 BC, the last two remaining tribes of Israel are carried off into Babylonian exile. Israel is a wreck at this point. And just like nations topple in your world civ class, your Western history class, nations are always vying for power. The empire called Babylon will get taken over in 539 BC by the new kid on the block, the Persian army. At this time, the late 500s BC, it's the biggest empire in the world, okay? They're the bullies. They push everybody else around. Just a few decades later, a new ruler 
will take the throne. His name is Xerxes. And Xerxes, this is the Xerxes of the famous Battle of Thermopylae, the Battle of the 300. It was made into a, a movie. We retell the story over and over again. This movie, was, was, it sucked. But uh, if you liked it, I'm sorry. I didn't like it at all. But this, this, this story is very famous. The 300 Spartans versus the mighty Persian army. And who was the Persian king? Xerxes. So the story we're going to be reading with Esther is set in that context. You with me so far? Tracking? We're getting our arms around this narrative. This is a snapshot for you of the vastness of this empire, from modern-day Pakistan all the way over to Turkey and, uh, and Libya and Egypt. It's huge. The Persian Empire was the biggest empire in the world at this time. And Jews Followers of Yahweh have been scattered all throughout this empire. They're growing up in hostile territory as refugees. You track it with a story. Now we're going to see what takes place in verse 4. We're going to dive in and see this first character introduced. It's going to be the Xerxes character. Look at it with me. For a full 180 days, half of a year, Xerxes, the emperor, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He has a daily parade just to show off all of the splendor and glory of his greed and might and power. It's a daily parade dedicated to him. Now, as I was working on this, I noticed something in our city I've never noticed before, and I found it odd. On the overpass right up here, when you go across the highway right up there past Sam's, when you're getting onto the highway, there is a sign. I took this picture. We were, I was thinking about this parade of Xerxes, and I took this picture because I thought this was so odd. What is odd in this list? Pedestrians prohibit, that makes sense. Bicycles prohibited from the highway, that makes sense. Parades? Why does it say parades? Who in God's name is getting a parade together and trying to get on the highway? And the reason this sign exists is because somebody did that. It seems like you don't have to say that. You know what? We should probably make some legislation. There's been too many parades trying to get on the highways in Arkansas. Let's put the sign up. That'll keep the parades off of there. And it got me thinking, what are the most stupid or unnecessary road signs? So I just Googled it, like stupid, unnecessary road signs, and I found a few of them. I don't know what this means. Does anybody know what that's supposed to be? I don't know what that's supposed to communicate. If I saw that sign, I would just leave that road because I don't know what this means. Here's another one. I think I know what they're trying to communicate, with this sign, I think they're saying like clutch braking or jake braking, not, not to do that, but it is horribly worded. Like brakeless trucks use the freeway. If I saw that, I would never get on that freeway. And my favorite one was this one. Somewhere, it's, it's gotta be somewhere in the Middle East. What does that mean? Am I supposed to be happy or scared by this sign? Like I think that's what I like about the sign is just the mystery of it. Like what's going on ahead of you is some kind of surprise. Like, I, would, I don't know what to do with this. But anyway, so that's totally, has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought that was interesting. He has a gigantic party. Xerxes has a half a year party. And man, this party is lot, it's better than any party you've ever been to. Like any function you've ever been to, any party you've been to where there's like tons of booze. You just got nothing on this party. It, it actually lists the goods and the booze at the party. Look at it. They got couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement. I don't know what mother of pearl even is. Now look at verse seven. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different than the other. And the royal wine 
was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. Have at it. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. It's a party for 180 days. And if that's not enough, they end the 180-day party, and he goes, seven more days of partying. And as the party continues, Xerxes has brought before his nobles all of his commodities, everything that he owns that points to his splendor and his majesty. And he gets to the last day, and he goes, bring the queen out here. Put the royal crown on her. Now, there's scholars debate, what does this mean when it says put the royal crown on her? Does that mean dress her in the royal outfits? Or does that mean only put the royal clown, uh, crown, royal clown, only put the royal crown on her? Either way, what Xerxes is doing is trying to display his wife for all of the nobles to see, look how amazing I am, that's my queen. What we're seeing demonstrated with this picture of this historical figure named Xerxes. Here's the comment that the biblical narrative is trying to give us about this character. He lives in an honor-shame culture of ancient Persia, and his honor is built on his money, connections, birth, family, race, talent, beauty. This is the way of building your honor or your status in the ancient Persian world. Before we, I gotta call a timeout. Before we even move on to the Esther story, this is, this is has, has much changed? Like, has that much changed? As I see this depiction of this decadent, greedy, drunken mess that is the beginning of this story, where your honor and your status are built on birth family, race, money, connections, your beauty, your talent, Man, I don't think the modern Western culture is all that much different. And you're trying to build your honor, usually at the expense of somebody else's, or at least compare, do I have more than them? And this, we're gonna get this very interesting picture that the biblical author is making about the trappings of these empires and their systems. And I just wanna, I wanna look at Xerxes and maybe kind of take some lessons as I look at it in our culture. We're gonna do the same thing later as we continue. So we get this picture at the beginning of the book, and now let me give you just a couple of things to look for as you go read it. We're going to study for the next four weeks. Here are some distinctive features, and if, you, if you're a note taker, I would write these things down at the, in the white space at the beginning of the book of Esther in your Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, write some of these things down, and then go read it. It's a really cool story. It reads like a soap opera. Uh, go read it. It reads like a really good drama. Here's some features that I want you to notice as you read it, and we're going to note these as we go. It's meant to pull you in. I tried to get out of doing this sermon, going as heavy as we're gonna go here in a minute, but the story just pulled me in. It wants you to identify with the characters, just like all good stories do. They pull you in, it's gripping. It's a story that was read every single year at the Feast of Purim. Jews, even to this day, read this story every year. It's instructive for the family of Israel. Just like we have our narratives that we tell every year as Americans, both as an American culture and as our like Christian culture, this is part of the Jews' cultural narrative that they read every single year. It's really quirky. Here's one of the quirks of this book. It's the only book in the Bible that never explicitly mentions God. Strange. It never mentions prayer. Now here's, we're gonna talk about this more in the third week. The author, the narrator, is gonna be so 
clever. They're going to say things without saying things. It's very tongue-in-cheek. They're going to communicate what they're trying to communicate, but it just so happens it was by coincidence or by happenstance that the events in the book take place. And they have to be clever. They have to be careful. Why? This is refugee literature. They've got to be clever with how they write it because they're growing up in hostile territory. They're living in hostile Persian territory. The next feature, I just said it, it's filled with coincidence and irony. It's filled with these weird reversals. And if you, can, if you pay attention, if you're a wise reader, you'll see these things begin to pop. One of the things I, I really appreciate about the book is women, I got two daughters, women figure prominently. Now, there's debate among scholars with the book of Esther. Some scholars, we might say more the liberal scholars, they can't stand Esther. They can't stand some of the comments. And ironically, some of the conservative scholars can't stand Esther in some of the comments that this book is gonna make. And I actually think both are reading it incorrectly. Let me give you one insight, especially ladies in the room. Esther will begin this narrative as an orphan refugee who is completely passive and essentially is a blank canvas for the men in her life to, to write whatever they want to on. And it's supposed to pull you into it. But by the end of the book, she's a lion. I mean, she's a rock. She's a leader. And I think one of the subtle comments that this book of Esther is making is look how God is working through this woman to deliver his people. I mean, I think it's inspiring. Like, I, I want my daughters to read it one day, even though it's got some weird things in it, which is our last point. It's loaded with moral ambiguity. I mean, if you think the Bible's full of a bunch of perfect characters that don't make mistakes, you ain't never read the Bible, okay? Not what the Bible's about. There is so much sex and violence and greed and drunkenness in this little narrative. There's deceit. And just like great movies or great stories today, like my favorite example of this is uh, Inception. How many of you have seen Inception? Okay. Uh, let me just do a little vote right now. I want you to be, raise your hand high if you've seen the movie. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry. Uh, this, I hope this doesn't give anything away. How many of you think the top stays spinning at the end of Inception? Raise your hand high. So he's still in the dream. How many think that the top falls, he's out of the dream? You're the hopeful people, all right? You're the optimists in the world. You don't know, right? It doesn't tell you. The movie demands debate. You walk out of the theater going, what do you think? And that's how the book of Esther is. Another one that I think demands debate is the Star Wars narrative now that it's all completed. And here's the debate that I, and you can, you're welcome to come talk to me about this afterwards. What they did between eight and nine, especially with nine, destroyed the Star Wars narrative. It ruined Star Wars, episode nine did. And some of you were like, no, 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 episode eight ruined Star Wars. No, you're wrong. Let's talk about it later, all right? It demands debate. And just like good stories often do, the story of Esther is gonna demand you to read it and go, our staff's actually been talking about it going, should she have done this like that? Like, what about Mordecai? Should he have done this like that? And then we started asking, what would you do if you were there? That's the point. It's inviting you in. It wants you to put yourself in the shoes of the characters. Remember, we are in ancient Persia as we read this story. In a world where this pagan king is the most powerful man on earth. He builds his honor through murder and war and rape. And he is winning 
And all these refugee Jews are growing up, looking around going, how can God be in this? Like, what are we supposed to do? This can't be it. This can't be God with us, really? I mean, we just saying, even when I don't see you, you're working, even when I don't feel you, you're working. I bet the, the Jews reading that in ancient Persia would go, I think that's all a lie. He's on the throne, we're refugees, now what? And that brings us to our question. What do you do? So we got our background, and we wanna look at, we're gonna look at two characters real fast. And I want them to pull you in, and then we're gonna sing a little bit, then we'll come back and put a little good news at the end, okay? First, I want you to see Esther. We're gonna see her in just a moment, but let's get our context for Esther's coming onto the scene. Xerxes has this big party, he says, bring my queen out here, show her off. And the queen refuses. Vashti refuses. And go read the section I'm not gonna show you in the rest of chapter one. The men lose their minds, all right? They lose it. They start flying off the handle. Men say this, put an edict out there, make all the women do this. They lose it. So much so that at the beginning of chapter two, here's what they, here's what they say. Excommunicate Vashti, send her out, kick her out, king. And he does. And they go, you know what? I think bachelor life's gonna be pretty good for you. Here, I got a plan. Let's go all over the empire, the vastness of that empire, and we're gonna round up all the beautiful young virgins. And you need to think like, probably younger than most everybody in this room. Round them up and bring them into my harem. You know what we call this today? Sex trafficking. Bring them all into my harem. And what they're going to set up is Xerxes will have a nightly encounter with a different virgin. He's going to sexually abuse them one by one every night until one of them pleases him. That's the plan they come up with. And it's, it's really weird. If you read chapter 2, like they, they bring them in. And then they, they, they force them to go through a year, these young women from all over the empire, just imagine their lives being taken from their families, hauled into Susa, and now they find themselves having to go through one full year worth of weird, bizarre treatments with oil and with perfume to get them ready and beautiful for the king. So then they can go into his room, and on the basis solely of their sexual performance, they will either be honored or they'll be sent back, rejected. Now, don't think sent back like, okay, fine, I get to go back to my home. No, 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 no. There are three options for these women. Option number one, they go in on their day and they sleep with Xerxes and he says, uh-uh. It doesn't mean they get set free. Now they go back into the harem. Now they live as concubines for the rest of their life because it's, it's impossible for them to marry somebody else. Now they've slept with the king. They're his property. They're just gonna waste away. That's option one. Anybody want that option? Option two, they go into Xerxes, sleep with Xerxes, and he's somewhat impressed with them. He sends them back to the harem. Now they're his concubine, and he says, I might call on you three years from now when I'm bored, when I'm drunk, and I can come back and we'll do the whole thing over again. At least you have access to the king every few years that way. You're still enslaved. You're still not going home. The third option is this. You please the king a lot. And he bestows on you the honor of becoming married to him. Now you have some reward or maybe some hope 
in life, all of it is based on how well you would perform sexually. It's a, this is a crazy story. That's what Xerxes has set up. And now we get Esther brought into the story. We're gonna get two characters introduced. One's named Mordecai, the other is Esther. Mordecai, we're told, here's, here, here they are coming onto the scene, had a cousin named Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. She's an orphan. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Got the scene? Who's Esther? She is a, she's an orphan refugee. I mean, just think about the most powerless person in our world right now, often are refugees and orphans. And she's both. She's an orphan refugee growing up in hostile territory in Persia, far away from her family's homeland. And look what happens. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also, underline it, taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Here's the story. Here's the scene. A refugee orphan growing up in the most powerful empire in the world is taken to spend a year being beautied up so she can go into the king's bedroom and be abused by the king. And she's sitting there waiting her turn for her turn to get abused. And my bet is she's going, how could God be in this? And my question to the author of this is, why are you telling us the story? They want to bring you in. They want you to put yourself in Esther's shoes. How would you be feeling right now? Like, let me ask all of you, but especially the ladies in the room. And I think the rhetorical device, I hope, will work, will work here. Can you imagine living in a world where your status was determined by your looks, your beauty, your sexual ability, and the way that you pleased or were attracted to the opposite sex. Can you imagine being in such a world like ancient Persia? Does it not sound like it? I hope the rhetorical device lands on you. It doesn't take that much of a stretch for you to put yourselves in Esther's shoes. Some of you have had horrific things happen to you similar to Esther. And it might make you ask this question, man, God, where are you? Put yourself in her shoes. This is her life. Having daily beauty treatments to go get abused? This is it? She's one of God's chosen? Why record this story? They're pulling you in. Now let's look at Mordecai. Look at Mordecai's part of the story. It says, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, that means he's probably, he's, he's an important person, at least he's respected. The king's gate is where a lot of business was done in the ancient world. And it's the king's gate, so it's got some political implication as well. Two dudes, I don't want to pronounce their names because I can't. Two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So plan to kill the king. And I'm sure Mordecai hates Xerxes. Xerxes stands for everything that Mordecai as a Jew, a follower of Yahweh, would be against. Look what Mordecai does. I don't know about you, I wouldn't be turning him in. I'd be like, kill him. How can I help? What does he do? He found out about the plot, and he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. They even wrote it down in the king's annals. How does he get thanked? 
How does Mordecai get rewarded? Look at the very next verse, chapter three, verse one. Chapter three begins this way. After these events, King Xerxes honored not Mordecai, but Haman. He's an Agagite. What does that mean? It means he's, a, he's an ancient rival, an ancient enemy of the Jews. Go look it up in your study Bible, the Agagites. Mordecai does the right thing and turns in the conspirators, the assassins. And as a result, his enemy gets honored. You can't get any more unfairly treated. Oh, and man, things get worse. Haman doesn't get, just get honored. He gets honored above everybody else, so much so that anybody walking by has got to fall on their knees before Haman. Bow. Oh, yes, Haman, you're so great. But Mordecai refuses. He will not bow to this man. He's loyal to Yahweh. And as a result of that, look at what Haman does. Haman loses it. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. And he doesn't just, he's not out for just for Mordecai's blood. Look at this. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all of the Jews. This is a crazy overreaction. Let's look at Mordecai. Esther's a refugee orphan who's been sex trafficked, is now waiting to be physically, sexually abused. And Mordecai, he is a God-fearing Jew who turns in the bad guys. He does a good and right thing. And instead, his enemy is exalted, and now him and all of his people are destined for genocide. What do we do? What do you do? Here's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna hit pause on this. We just wanna give you a couple of songs worth to process this. I'm gonna give you permission. We as a church, we wanna give you permission to ask this question. Some of you right now, you're like, man, my life's been pretty good. I don't feel like I've got some things that make me think God's not in it. Thank, when we sing these songs, thank the Lord. It's awesome. Thank him for that. But I know there's a several of you, if not most of you in the room, there's a lot of times in your life when you're asking this. Some of you came in the room tonight, and if you were honest, you've been thinking this. We want you to be honest. If you, these next few minutes, these next two songs, um, if you wanna stand and sing, that's great. If you wanna sit and journal, that's great. If you need to get some air, it's beautiful outside, get some air. If you wanna talk to the person next to you, man, I, he, I gotta tell you this, this has been weighing on me. Then, then do that. We wanna give you space and permission. God honors our honesty. He's not looking for us to pretend like everything's great when sometimes we got a lot of doubts and frustrations and fears and anxieties. So be honest. Be honest with him. Be honest with yourself. And then we're gonna come and, we're gonna come and put some good on this. But we wanna give you some space to do that right now. When God seems a million miles away, or maybe he's not that far away, but he just doesn't seem like he cares, what do you do? Before we turn it, we wanna give you space to just process that. So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing and think about the words for these next few minutes we have. I just want you to be thinking, praying, processing. It's time for you and time for me. Let's pray. Father, what a weird book this book of Esther is, and what a strange start it is when it looks bleak. It doesn't look like there's anything good going on here. It looks like you're not in this story at all. And I know that's so often how we can feel in our struggle with sin, as we struggle with our own doubts and our own fears, and we deal with our own hurt and wounds. 
And so just even right now, we wanna just breathe a little and have space to just be honest and maybe even admit that. Maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, just say, God, sometimes I'm kind of frustrated and sometimes I don't get it and sometimes I feel like you're not there. And Lord, we want these words that we sing to to just land maybe in that space. And so Holy Spirit, would you be working in these next eight minutes or so and maybe it's just one person that needs this tonight. Would you fill that person with the peace that comes only from you and enable them right now just to be honest with you. We thank you, Jesus, that you're here with us. And we love you and pray this in your name. Amen. Let's sing.
this question. It feels like God's either a thousand miles away, a million miles away, or maybe worse, he's close, but he doesn't care. He's not good. I don't know how I can trust him. He's letting these things happen to me or to our world or to my family or whatever it may be. And what we're going to see, you're going to have to come back to hear the rest of Esther. Uh, We're just going to go a couple chapters at a time. What we're going to see is it just so happens that, that Xerxes gets drunk, and it just so happens that Vashti gets removed, and it just so happens that Esther is beautiful, and it just so happens that she's the one brought in, and it just so happens that she keeps finding favor with so many people in the story. It just so happens Mordecai over here is it just so happens, and we're going to see all these strange little coincidences in the story, and they're going to keep building and building and building, and what's the author trying to communicate to you and me? Literally what we're just saying, through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. They're not going to say, they're not going to come out and say it, but they're going to demonstrate in the story that God is in it. Isn't that just like life? Sometimes the moments in your life and my life when you're like, how could God be in this? You'll look back and go, I know exactly what God was doing there. Or I can see how God can take this, something that was so difficult or tragic and produce something beautiful through it. In fact, one of the big purposes, this is the purpose statement, we're gonna use this uh, as we go forward, of the book of Esther. This is kind of my working purpose statement for this book. It's something like this. It's meant to teach you and teach me. Here's what it's teaching. Even when it looks like God's not with you, even when it looks like he's so far away, he remains faithful to his promises. Even when I can't see it, We're gonna come back these next few weeks to fill the gaps in in this story. So what's our response? Trust and obey him with courage and conviction. Here's how we we move to singing this last song. Feels like he's either a long way away or if he's close, he sure doesn't love me. As we turn now and look at the narrative of the whole Bible in its fullness, I think the cross and the picture that we see of Jesus in the garden. The cross and the picture of Jesus in the garden, they teach us something really profound. Whatever the answer is to that question, what do we do when God is a thousand miles away or if he's not, he sure doesn't seem to care about me. Whatever our answer is to that question, the cross tells us that neither one of those things is true. The cross will tell us that Jesus, God cannot be any more involved in our story than coming into this world, into the mess of the broken human condition personally. Not some distant figurehead God, not some absentee landlord God, not some God way out there. He's here. And the garden and the cross tells us it can't be that he's a million miles away. And the garden of Jesus and his suffering and the cross will tell us that it can't be that he doesn't care for you and it can't be that he doesn't love you. For God so loves the world that he sends his only son 
we don't perish because he did. His love motivates him. So, as we continue next week in this Esther series, as we turn now to sing just these last words, what, what I'd invite you to do is to celebrate these words. Whatever the answer is to that question, we're gonna see more as the next days unfold, next weeks unfold. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have friends abandon him. He knows what it's like to have a powerful person abuse him. He knows what it's like to experience pain. He knows what it's like to weep at the death of a friend. And the Bible's gonna say, because he's this close and he loves us this much, we can run to his throne with confidence because of the grace that is ours in Jesus. And so right now we're gonna do just that. Followers of Jesus in the room especially, that's you. If you're not and you wanna know more about this whole thing, we're gonna have people that we'd love to just talk to you. I'll be right here at the end of the service. We'd love to process with you. This is your first time especially. We're gonna sing these ancient words from the middle of the book of Psalms, Psalm 46. And we're gonna declare that he is with us in the fire and he is with us in the storm. We have nowhere else that we would go. So would you stand with us as we declare these words together, reminding ourselves he's faithful and he loves us. Let's sing.
to work together for good, all things, even the bad things, to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, as the, we go in confidence, knowing that he's right in it, hasn't left us, hasn't forsaken us. If you need just somebody to pray with, talk with, our staff will be around. We'd love to chat with you. Uh, God bless y'all. Have a great evening. Have a great week. We'll see you right back here to pick up the story in Esther. Love y'all. Have a great week, everybody.